Lord Jesus, we know that you are the only one that can meet all of our needs. And Lord, because of that, we love you. Lord, we ask that you would use what you say to us in the Bible this morning to help us understand that truth more and more. We pray these things in your name. Amen. The summer before I went to college at the University of Washington, the only real university in the state, <laughs> that wasn't in the notes, it just came to me. That was the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Summer before I went to college, I came to Seattle for a week of orientation, and I stayed with my aunt and uncle who live in Laurelhurst. And after the first day, I was walking home, but I had trouble finding their house because, as you may know, houses in Laurelhurst are like bags in the airport. They all look the same. But I finally found the house. I walked in, sat down in the living room, started reading the paper. And this dog came out into the living room, and I thought, that's odd. I didn't know my aunt had a dog. And then this elderly woman came out and said, Frank, is that you? And she looked at me and she said, you're not my husband. And I said, you're not my aunt. You can tell what happened. I was in the wrong house. To most people in our culture, religions are like houses in Laurelhurst. They all look the same. We live in an egalitarian, pluralistic culture with a lot of different religions. And we prize tolerance above everything else. And so most people in our culture say that all religions are equally true and they're all the same. It sounds great. There's just one problem. They can't be equally true because they claim very different things. Some say there is one God, others many. Some believe in life after death, others don't. To say that all religions are the same is like saying that all books are the same because they're all printed on paper. Yes, there are some similarities, but there are even more differences. And to say that they are all basically the same is an insult to all of them. I don't think Buddhists appreciate it when people say that the religion is more or less the same as Christianity. It's in this context that Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Wow. Way to be politically incorrect, Jesus. I mean, didn't you mean to say you're just one of many ways? That's not what he says. And the passage we read out of Acts says that there is no other name by which people can be saved but by Jesus. Now, that does not mean that other religions don't have things of great value and great beauty. Of course they do. But what the Bible claims and what I believe is that Jesus is the only one who can completely connect us to God. We've been talking all Lent about objections people have to the Christian faith, reasons they give for not being Christian. And this is the big one. This is the Mount Everest of reasons in our culture. How can you say that Jesus is the only way? Isn't that just exclusive and arrogant? So I want to take a little bit of time this morning to talk about how, why I, an atheist, who used to think Christians were intolerant because of this belief, came to believe that Jesus really is the only way to God. And like many of these talks, this will get a little philosophical at points. So again, if you could just nod once in a while, even just sort of get in, your, get in a little habit of doing this, it'll help me out, okay? Make me feel better anyway. How can you say that Jesus is the only way? Well, for starters, I didn't say it. Jesus did, so take it up with him. 
But here are some reasons I believe it's true. The first reason is this. Jesus is the only way to God because Jesus was the only one who was raised from the dead. Two weeks ago in a sermon, I gave you some reasons why I believe that actually happened in history. And in the bulletin, I've given you some titles of some books in the question section that make that case. And if that's true, if Jesus really was raised from the dead, and I believe that he was, then you've got to admit this. That makes him unique among religious figures. And we probably at least should pay attention. Jesus is the only way because he's the only one who was raised from the dead. The second reason I came to believe that Jesus is the only way is because in Jesus, God comes to us. We don't go to him. Jesus is God in the flesh, showing us what God is really like in a language, in a way that we can understand. And again, this is unique. Every other religion, we have to go to God and figure him out. But in Jesus, God comes to us. And this just makes sense, right? If we are going to really know God, if we're going to figure God out, it's going to be because he came to us, not because we figured him out on our own. Because he's so much bigger and more complex than we are. It'd be as if goldfish wanted to try to figure us out. Right? We'd probably think that was cute and amusing. One only hopes God feels the same. <laughs> they couldn't do it unless we were to somehow become a goldfish and show them what human beings were like in a language they can understand. Jesus is the only way to God because in Jesus, God comes to us and shows us what he's like in a way that makes sense to us. Third reason that I came to believe that Jesus is the only way and this is really the, the big one. Because only Jesus takes care of our real problem. And that's sin. The religion you choose will be based on the problem you think you have. If you think you're not smart enough, you're going to choose a religion of enlightenment. If you think you're not good enough, you'll choose a religion that emphasizes doing good deeds. But if you think that you're not smart enough and you're not good enough, and furthermore, there's nothing that you on your own could ever do to be smart enough and be good enough to relate to an eternal, holy God, well, then you have only one choice, and that's Jesus. Because what you're really saying is that your problem is sin and separation from God, and you need a Savior. Now, sin is not a word that we like to use anymore. We don't like to admit that we have a sin problem. But as G.K. Chesterton put it, Sin is the only theological concept that can be 100% proven. <laughs> Empirically, just look around to your right, to your left. What do you see? Sin, right? Look at me. What do you see? Sin everywhere. If you don't believe in sin, have kids. They're wonderful mirrors. <laughs> Where'd you learn that, right? I think it is ironic that the word sin fell out of fashion in the 20th century. The century that brought us two world wars, genocide, and nuclear weapons. Not to mention all the ways that on an individual level we hurt people. Wounds we make with our words. The ways we put ourselves first at the expense of others. Or gossip or any number of things. Even Gandhi. Gandhi, who was a very good man, said this. It is an unbroken torture to me that I am still so far from him who, as I fully know, governs every breath of my life and whose offspring I am. And I know that it is the evil passions within that keep me so far from him, and yet I cannot get away from them. I don't think Gandhi's saying that he needs enlightenment. 
And I don't think he's saying he needs a list of good deeds to perform. I think he's saying that there is a gulf between me and God. And that gulf is my own brokenness. And I can't fix it on my own. Let me give you an analogy that I adapted from John Ortberg for my own life. When Christine and I moved here, we, we bought a brand new house, never been lived in before. And it was, I'd never been in a brand new house. They're amazing. Right? Everything was so beautiful. I mean, especially the walls. They were just spotless and pure, right? I mean, they were holy, right? So we said to our kids, whatever you do, don't touch the walls. Don't play near the walls. Don't bring pins near the walls. In fact, don't even think about the walls. In every other part of the house, ye may freely play. But near the walls, the spotless walls, ye may not. For on the day ye touch thereof, ye shall surely die. (laughs) And then one day, there was a fall. A mark on our spotless wall. And so Christina called the kids together and said, Did you touch the wall? And for a long time, they didn't say anything. Until finally, Jackson cracked and he said, Holly did it. And she said, no, I didn't. And I knew that they were never going to admit that they had marked the wall because I had marked the wall when I moved the furniture in. (laughs) We all have a spot, a mark, a stain. It's called sin. And I have it. I lie. I ignore people in need. I judge others. I look out for only my own interests. I clutch. I use. That's just the top six. I could go on and on. And all of that hurts other people. We all fall short of God's goodness. Now, in our culture, people want to say, oh, it's not that bad. So I have these flaws, these trivial little peccadillos. They're really kind of charming if you look at them the right way. I'm not a sinner. I have ethical growth opportunities. (laughs) Why can't God just overlook my trivial little flaws? I mean, I'm not Hitler or anything. High praise, right? Well, here's the problem. God is perfect. Like that wall, spotless. And his creation, he wants it to be perfect. Like that wall, spotless. Because when it is not perfect, we suffer the consequences. It causes us pain, as we talked about last week. And if God accepts even the smallest flaw, he and his creation are no longer perfect. Let's just take one example of a tiny sin. Okay, gossip. Right? We all gossip. Only in the church we call it praying for other people. You've been there, right? We need to pray for so... Yeah, right. It's a small thing, right? Why can't God just overlook it? We all do it. Well, because even that small, tiny little sin, itsy-bitsy sin, causes a lot of pain. It wrecks reputations that took a lifetime to build. It makes people not trust each other. causes all kinds of pain. So let's say God overlooks that itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny little sin. Is God still perfect? No, there's a mark on Him. Because He's tolerating... Injustice. And for that matter, is heaven perfect? Is heaven still heaven? If God lowers his standards so low that unrepentant gossips can get in. Do you want to be in that heaven where God tolerates gossip for eternity? You see, and, and is God even loving if he allows that? Certainly not to the person gossiped about, right? That person got a wrecked reputation and no one was held accountable. There was no justice. You see, a God who is not just finally, is also not loving. Because he allows terrible things to happen and justice is never done. Perfect love demands perfect justice. 
So at the cross, God does both. Punishes evil, and not just your sin or my sin, but everybody's sin forever. But he himself bears the weight of his own punishment so we can go free. Josh McDowell tells the story of a woman in a traffic court who pled guilty to a traffic violation. And the judge sentenced her to pay $100. And then as soon as he sentenced her, he stood up, took out his own wallet, and paid the fine himself. The reason he did that was because the woman was his daughter. And he loved her. But if he just overlooked her violation, he wouldn't be just, right? And if he kept on excusing traffic violations and people got wind of it, then pretty soon people would drive whatever way they wanted to drive and his jurisdiction would be a wreck, just like California, right? Hell, you don't want that. So he upheld justice, but he did it in a way where he himself paid the price. That's what God does in Jesus. He upholds justice, but in a way where he bears the penalty of his own sentence. And he's the only one that does that. He's the only one that takes care of this problem, this stain, this spot. Now, what, what fully happens at the cross is a mystery. I could never fully explain it to you in a million years. But whatever is going on there, what God is showing us is his character. He's trying to make himself clear. And what he is showing us is he is perfectly just and he is perfectly loving at the same time. And this is what we need in order to feel forgiven. People say, well, why did it have to be so dramatic? Because I'm not sure we could feel forgiven any other way. Psychologically speaking, what if God were just to say, oh, those sins, let's just ignore it. You're right. Let's just, let's, you know, let's just call it even. Let bygones be bygones. Would you feel forgiven? I'm not sure most of us would. It would feel too easy, too cheap if Jesus, if God just said, oh, never mind. Right? Shouldn't there be some kind of justice? Doesn't a price have to be paid? Psychologically, it wouldn't seem real to us. The cross allows us to know that it's real. Justice has been done. That means our forgiveness is real and certain and fair. Jesus' death is like the golden Fort Knox. It backs up the currency of God's forgiveness. We can look at the cross and know it's for real. The price has been paid. And what that means is that we can stop trying to cover over our own mark our own stain. Stop trying to convince other people that we don't have that mark, that we don't have that stain. Stop trying to get the best job or the fancier title or the more impressive resume. Stop trying to make up for all our bad actions with all of our good ones. All of those are ways of saying, don't look at my faults, look at my achievements, don't look at this stain, look at all the good things I'm doing. Don't you love me? Don't you want me? Won't you accept me now if I do all of this? And we live our lives that way. And the problem is there is no end to that. How much is enough to cover over all of our misdeeds? The great thing about Jesus is he died once and for all. Every price has been paid, every sin accounted for. We are made right with God forever. And if ever we needed proof that we are loved and accepted, the nails in his hands and the wounds in his feet are proof positive. For me, Jesus is the only way because he's the only one that was raised from the dead. And he is the only one who can show me what God is like in a way that I can understand it. And he takes care of my real problem. And that's sin. And no other religious figure offers that. Now, for the big question. Does this mean, does this mean that the person in Africa who has never heard about Jesus, does this person get condemned? Or what about the person who's heard about him but couldn't really accept him because all the Christians around him were so mean? Does this mean that that person gets condemned? 
I could say a lot about that, but here's my short answer. What I know from Scripture is this. God is loving. God doesn't want anyone to be lost. Jesus is the only way. And somehow those three go together. We know, for instance, that people in the Old Testament were saved by the faith they had in the God that was revealed to them, even though they lived before Jesus. But they didn't just believe in a God. It was a little more specific than that. Over and over, people in the Old Testament are always admitting that if they're ever going to get squared away with God, it's not going to be because of their good works, but because of what God did. Abraham, for instance, at one point says that when it comes to getting right with God, God himself would provide the sacrifice. In other words, Abraham had a dim understanding that his good deeds would never be enough. God would have to save him, which God does 2,000 years later. Abraham was believing in the function of Jesus, was believing in the need for Jesus, even though he didn't know his name. And presumably when Abraham gets to heaven and sees Jesus, he'll say, you're the one I was looking for all my life, but I never knew your name. What puts us in right relationship with God is not our theology, not our fully formed understanding of the atonement, not our good deeds, not even our religion. What reconciles us to God is our admission that we can't save ourselves and God's going to have to do it. And wherever people respond to that truth, however much of it they know, they are believing in the need for Jesus, even if they don't know his name. And then whatever happens to them, I don't know how God reckons all of that. I just know that if they come, they're coming through Jesus. And I also know this, on Judgment Day, God's not going to be asking my opinion. He's not going to be saying, hey, Dudley, what do you think about this one? In, out, what do you think? Not my choice. Christianity is not particular about who gets saved. It's just particular about who does the saving. However they come, they're entering through the door of Jesus, whether they know his name or not. And that's why Jesus being the only way isn't narrow. It is the opposite. It is the most inclusive way there is. You don't have to be born into the right class. You don't have to perform a lot of rituals. You don't have to be enlightened. You don't, have, you don't even have to be good. You just need to know Jesus. And that's something everyone can do. And for me, this is such good news because if getting right with God was up to me, I would be in trouble because I am not a good person. And I'm a pastor, so how depressing is that for everybody else? <laughs> for me, Jesus is the only way because he was raised from the dead, because he shows me God in a way I understand, and he takes care of my deep, real problem, and I know it's sin. I know that. Those are some of the intellectual reasons I came to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But there was one more reason, and to me this is the most important. So if you hear nothing else, hear this. If your mind has wandered away, come back home. Because this reason is the reason that it all points to. The real reason I finally became convinced that Jesus is the only way is because only Jesus offers me a relationship with God, and that's what I want, a relationship with my Creator. Everything I've said in this sermon up to this point points to this. God wants a relationship with us. You know, other religious figures have said, I have the truth, or I know the truth, but only Jesus said, I am the truth. That is, Jesus doesn't offer us a list of rules. He offers a relationship. You'll notice in this story that Thomas asks a kind of philosophical question. How can we know the way? It's, it's very intellectual. It was very educated. Thomas was a Presbyterian. <laughs> and Jesus gives him a relational answer. I am the way. 
It's relational. What we see in Jesus, especially Jesus on the cross, is a God who is passionate about us. And no other religion offers that. Other gods tell me I have to work harder to earn their approval. Or I need to be more enlightened to understand them. But what makes Jesus so different is that in him, we see a God who passionately, madly, irrationally loves us. A God who would do anything just to be with us. A God who says, I love you so much, I'd rather die than lose you. There is no other God than that. That's the God I want to give my heart to. And that's why for me, Jesus is the only way. He's the only one that loves me that much. And the question he's asking us is not a philosophical question. It's not a scientific question. It's a relational one. Will you let me in? After Christina and I had been dating for almost a year, she decided it was time to get married. (laughs) And every day when I'd pick her up for one of our dates, she'd open the door and the first thing she'd say is, are we getting engaged today? Every day. Very annoying. (laughs) If you're the guy. But the reason she kept asking was she knew I was crazy about her, which was true. So eventually I decided I'd ask her. And I wanted to show her how much I loved her. So I found the perfect ring, which was easy to do because she pointed it out every time we passed it in the mall. (laughs) And I made reservations at the perfect restaurant and I found the perfect place to propose. So I showed up at her house that evening. She opened the door and she said, are we getting engaged today? Like she did every day, right? And I said, stop asking that question. So we got in the car and I had some food there because when she's hungry, she gets grouchy, so I didn't want to take any chances. (laughs) And as soon as she saw the food, she knew what I was up to and she starts jumping up and down in the seat going, we're getting engaged, we're getting engaged. (laughs) The surprise element was gone. So we got to that perfect place and given her anticipation, I decided to just skip the preliminaries. I put my arm around her, I looked her in the eye and I said, Christina, I am crazy about you and other romantic things. (laughs) And then I said, will you marry me? Now, if in that moment she had said, true, that wouldn't have been the answer I was looking for, right? Will you marry me? True. That's not the right answer. Or if she had said, hmm, what a well-posed Socratic question that opens up an array of ethical and moral possibilities. (laughs) I'd have been disappointed. What did I want her to say? Yes. I didn't want her to accept my ideas or acknowledge the fact that I existed. I wanted to be part of her life. In Jesus, God has done everything he can to show us how much he loves us. In Jesus, God has done everything he can to show us how much he wants to be with us. And in Jesus, God is asking us not a philosophical question, not a scientific question. He is asking us a relational one. Will you let me in? Will you let me love you? Will you let me be the leader of your life and the forgiver of your sins? And you can say no. He gives you that freedom. Or you can say, I need more time, and he'll keep working on you. But the answer he's waiting to hear is yes. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you will let me in, I will love you forever. Ball's in your court. Will you let him in? Please pray with me. Maybe you have never had a chance 
to make Jesus the leader of your life and the forgiver of your sins. If you would like to do that now, would you please just pray this prayer silently along with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me this much. And Lord, I am sorry for all the ways that I have run away from you, and I don't want to do that anymore. So Jesus, please be my leader and my forgiver. Send your spirit into my heart and help me to follow you. If you prayed that prayer, now you're a Christian. Before you leave, would you just tell me or one of the other pastors or the elders at the prayer room so that we can help you take the next steps? Others of you maybe need just a little bit more time. You're intrigued by Jesus, but it's just not the right time yet. Would you just pray this prayer silently with me? Lord, I am interested, but I need to know more. Lord, please keep working with me. Help me to understand you more and more. And he will do that. And then for the rest of us, would you please pray with me? Lord, thank you so much that you loved us this much. Lord, we confess that we are always looking for other ways to make ourselves happy or to feel secure. We've done that this week. But Lord, we know that you are the only way. You are the only truth. You are the only life. Lord, you are the rock. Please help us to stand on you and you alone. And we'll be grateful people. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.